Well, let's take our Bibles. Turn to Judges chapter 6. I've been studying Judges for a number of weeks now. This is our, our summer series. We've taken a break from the book of John and we'll resume that regularly scheduled programming in the fall. But I think we've learned quite a bit so far in the book of Judges. And uh, for those of you who've never studied through it before, you've probably learned some things you didn't know were in the Bible. And hopefully we've been studying it right. And that is that on certain occasions you think, I can't believe that's actually in the Bible. These are some bizarre stories. Uh, some would, would use that word, ancient words, these stories that are so different from what we would consider uh, normal but what I'd like to do this morning, we'll, we'll read through a few verses and then we'll pray. But like last week, because some of this narrative is so long, we've got a lot to read through. And we'll read through most of it today, only covering chapter 6. Gideon's story itself covers three chapters. It's kind of like Samson's account. There are many chapters, while other judges, you might just have a paragraph or two. Well, Gideon is a major judge. And we'll look at at least chapter 6 today, and we'll hurry our way through it as we read and make a few notes or comments along the way till we get the story out on our counter. And then once we've got it all there where we can see it and what the parts look like, then we'll go back and make some application. We'll start asking those questions, where do I fit into this passage and what can I learn from it? And I think with narrative, sometimes that's the best way to go about it. But let's read at least through verse, uh, verse 10 or so, and then we'll ask for the Lord's help as we seek to understand and obey. This is verse 1, the sixth chapter of the book of Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land. And as far as Gaza... And the leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whom, whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for your word. And we ask that you teach us through it and by it. May we first understand it. And then may we be obedient to what we see. Especially where you're prompting us to change. To be more like you. Less like ourselves. Lord be our teacher. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well this story is more lengthy than the previous story. And where last week with chapters 4 and 5 where we saw the same story in both chapters, one in normal format and the other in musical format, we learned that Deborah, the only female judge, and Barak, who was the general that she enlisted to be the deliverer, won a victory over the Canaanite chariot forces. We talked about how that was like a modern tank division. And they were able to win this uh, great victory, which opened up to them the, the lower coastal plain which during that downpour, all the chariots got stuck in. Well, they were able to clear all that, and that's now theirs, and they were able to plant crops. Very fertile geographic location. It's perfect for that sort of thing. But now we learn that there's another group of people who threaten their survival, but in a different way. We learn the names of these two specifically, and then there's some unnamed people from the east, but Midian, that's the first, Midian was actually the ancestor of the Midianites. These people descend from the son of Keturah. You remember Keturah? That was one of uh, the concubines of Abraham. He had more than one wife. And uh, just like Ishmael, this uh, son here, Midian, was, was put away to the east because Isaac was the only heir. But we see him again, and this time as an enemy of the descendants of Isaac. And then the Amalekites were descendants of Amalek, who was a grandson of Esau. So if you're one like to connect all the dots and who these players are, that's who they are. But the passage begins with the familiar words now, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We've dropped the word again because it's become so repetitive. We don't even need the word again anymore. But that's what they've done, and it kicks off another cycle of what we've seen in Judges so many times now already. This one's going to be a major episode, and it'll hold uh, three chapters worth uh, of material. But if you look at the way Israel's life is described here, it's, it's more details on top of details than we've seen yet. They're hiding in caves and dens and strongholds like animals. Uh, their crops are destroyed by these people who invade and take it all. Uh, their livestock is carried off when they leave. So the land is laid waste and they have absolutely no economic base. All of that has been destroyed. And we're left with that, that phrase, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. I mean, imagine winning the victory, building your houses, planting fields. But in this Time, they're living in caves, watching what they've planted be taken away by somebody else. So they cry out. But this time we see something we haven't seen yet. Every time previous to this, this is the point where God sends the, the judge, the deliverer, and begins initiating the process of, of their victory. It'll be a struggle. It'll involve war. But they will win because God's given these into their hand. Well, 
there's a step before we get to that part here. And in this case, God sends a prophet. The prophet doesn't initiate the motion of deliverance like the judges. That's still what the judge is going to do. But in this case, before we get to that, the prophet comes to accuse the Israelites of covenant infidelity. Before they get their delivery, they get a prophet who delivers a sermon first. It's kind of like being broke down on the side of the road. And a young man goes through the glove box and finds that card with three A's on it. And calls in, I'm broke down on the side of the road. But instead of AAA sending a tow truck with a mechanic, they just send his daddy out there. To say, son, I told you if you didn't get this thing serviced, you'd blow it up. You have to change the oil in this. They don't just run and run and run. It's not that you just put gas in it and crank it. And it always does what it's supposed to. If you don't take care of it, it'll break down. Like the kid needs that at the moment. A a, a sermon. A dressing down. At the point of his lowest uh, career as an adolescent at the moment. That's where Israel is. They've messed this up. Again. But before the deliverer comes, a sermon comes to remind them of this infidelity. What's going on here is that they are calling on God, but they act as if that calling on God does not invoke a relationship. A relationship which has certain obligations. You will be my people, I will be your God. But they've absolutely ignored all those obligations. None of them have been met. So what we would expect at this part of the story, if we've never read this before, but we've read other things similar to it in Scripture, you would think, well, this is like when the other prophets come into town and they tell them how they've disobeyed and that God is now going to judge them. And then they'll start lining up what to expect as far as the judgment. This group's going to be carried off to Babylon. This group's going to be carried off uh, in, in other places. That's not what we see here, though. That's what we would expect, but what we see in verse 11 is this. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. You might have tree, you might have oak there, but a terebinth is a tree, it's a big tree. And that's at Ophrah, not Oprah, but Ophrah. That's a place. Which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon, there's Gideon, we know judges for Gideon, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Where's the rest of the sermon? Well, that was it. There wasn't any invitation. We don't see a response. We don't see Israel at the altar. All we see is, is the end of that scene and then the next one, where the deliverer's coming. So, even though these people shouldn't expect deliverance based on what had been said, which was true by the prophet, they're going to get deliverance. And this is where you should make a mental note or write this down. They don't deserve any of the grace they're getting, but they get it anyway. Which is a snapshot of the future, the entire New Testament. Not just the Hebrews, the entire world is going to get grace they don't deserve through the plan of salvation paid for in full by Jesus Christ. So who is this angel of the Lord we met in verse 11? Angel of the Lord came and sat under the tree 
Well, we're going to find out in a few verses that this is none other than Jesus himself. Not Jesus of Nazareth. He hasn't been born of a virgin yet. But the God part of the God man, the second person of the Trinity, is going to make a visit here. Now, when we see the angel of the Lord, a lot of times that means just that. It, it's, it's Jesus. It's a pre-incarnate uh, visit from Jesus himself. Sometimes, perhaps not. We have to take it on context based on what this angel of the Lord is doing and how he acts. But in this case, it's very clear. The word angel means a messenger. And in the same way that Jesus was the messenger of grace in the New Testament, he's the messenger of grace in the Old Testament. And where he finds Gideon to begin the process of calling him into service, he's in a wine press threshing wheat. Well, that's the wrong tool for wheat threshing. You use a threshing floor, not a wine press. And this is probably because they had everything stolen from them. So if he's actually got wheat to thresh, that's a good thing. And you don't want the Midianites to find it. Some say, well, this is just descriptive of his cowardice. I'm pretty sure everybody did it this way. Because you didn't want to get caught. You didn't want to lose what you had. But what is confusing here to Western readers is this is not the way you set up putting together a man qualified to, to knock out a, a, an enormous army. This is not the epic opening scene we're looking for on something like one of these superhero movies. It just starts out normal like a guy hiding from people who want to steal his lunch using the wrong tool to do something the hard way. Why would that be exciting? Well, what's any more exciting than a man with his sheep in the desert and comes across a burning bush? It's kind of the style of this whole thing. It, it wouldn't make sense the way we'd write the story, but this is exactly how it's done. Now, in verse 12, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, which is not what this man is. We'll get to that in a minute. Gideon said, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us. And notice in your translation, the first Lord in that sentence, please, my Lord. And then the second Lord, if the Lord be with us. Those are all caps. One is Yahweh and the other is just a term of respect for someone socially higher than you are. So he's saying, sir, if God was with us, then all, why has all this happened to us? And where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying... Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So the Lord addresses Gideon as mighty man of valor. And this is where if this was a play at a high school, everybody would laugh. Because that's not, this guy's not a mighty warrior. He might be called a lot of things, but not that. And Gideon doesn't yet recognize that he's conversing with, with God here. That's evident. Even so, his charge that God had abandoned them was an awful distortion of fact. He didn't listen to the sermon, right? He's saying to this guy, I don't know who it is, but if, if, if all that's great, then why in the world are we in this situation? Where God has abandoned us and given us to the Midianites. The truth of it was, Israel had abandoned God through worshiping other gods and making other idols and doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. This is quite obvious, but to Gideon, 
He's not on that page yet. God had given them into the hand of the Midianites. That's true, but it was because of their disobedience. Furthermore, the way he describes these wonderful deeds he's heard since he was a kid from his grandparents, as if they're not something he's ever seen, so where's the beef as far as Yahweh and his help? They're only confirming the fact that Gideon doesn't know God like his grandparents knew God. And notice they did tell him about those things from history. So the generation that arose that did not know the God of their fathers, we can't lay that at the feet of parents who didn't tell them. But a generation who willfully didn't do anything with that information and didn't know personally this this God of their fathers. Verse 14, let's keep going. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours or strength of yours. What strength? There it is again. And save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. I'm sending you. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you. That's huge. We'll come back to that at the end. That's something we'll, we'll use in application. Gideon doesn't have much confidence in this. He's, he's very skeptic. But the important thing we need to pull out from here before we go to verse 17 is that it doesn't matter how Gideon thinks or feels about himself. What matters, and he'll learn this, is what God has declared him to be. And that is this mighty warrior. His strength comes from his being chosen by God and in God's promise to be with him. We're going to get to the end with, this, with something this passage is known for, about how to determine God's will for your life, right? And uh, oftentimes we've got this idea uh, th- that we should expect certain things and that God should do certain things. And all the time we're wrestling with certain feelings that we have. And Gideon's the same way here. I'm not the guy you're looking for. But it doesn't matter what we feel or think. It matters what God knows to be true. And if you're ever wondering, okay, whose voice am I listening to? The voice of God calling me to this that I don't think I'm cut out for? Or the voice of the devil who's trying to trick me and get me into trouble? they don't talk the same way. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak the way the devil speaks. Now, the devil's a liar, right? He loves to lie and distort things. But he does also like to use the truth, especially about you and how pathetic you are. And he'll tell the truth about you and beat you up over it. All the mistakes you've made and how you're not cut out for anything. There are other people who are, but you're not you. The Holy Spirit, though, has access to what he created you to be. And what he had in mind when he created you to begin with. And the cost at which he would go to make sure he didn't spend eternity without you. Which would involve his son's death. And those things are not at all like the way we are. So if it looks as if you're trying to be stretched upward toward Christ likeness. That's probably the voice of the Holy Spirit. If it's someone beating you up for being a, a lost, broken, sinful person. While you were that way, Christ died for. Then it's probably the devil trying to distract you from that. But we'll, we'll pick this up again at the end. We've got to move quickly. He said to him, 
If now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And we almost might be able to appreciate his, uh, his being thorough with, with, with what he thinks he's got in front of him. Please do not depart from me here until I can come and bring out my present and set it before you. He said, I will stay till you return. So it seems Gideon's thinking this is different. Maybe this is supernatural. Maybe he thinks he's talking to God, but he's got to be sure. So verse 19, Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the oak or the terebinth and presented them. So he's cooked him a huge meal. And the scholars don't understand, what's the meal got to do with the sign that he needs? Unless, of course, this isn't an average meal. This is way more than anyone. This is enough for a family reunion. I don't know if any of you have eaten a whole goat in one sitting. But a, even a young goat's a lot of meat. And then this ephah of flour is 22 liters of flour. You know, two liter Cokes or Pepsis. Well, you need 11 of those full of flour. That's a lot of flat bread. There's unleavened bread here. And all of this is brought and set in front of him. And maybe what's going on is I'm going to give him more food than a normal man should require. And if he accepts this as a form of worship, then I'm dealing with God. And if he says, no, this is too much, that might be what's going on. But what happens, the angel of God said to him, verse 20, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. You almost want to say, no, 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 it's not good. That's not how it's made. You don't, you don't pour that over the bread. You dip the bread in the broth. You know, but just, what? Why would he? And so he did. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprung up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. I'm not sure if that's what he expected or not. But I'm just, you've come to know by now. I have this imagination. I like to think of what it would be like. And I've sat down with lots of people and had meals before. And getting to know so many of you over the past year. We've, we've met in your homes, which is, carries some bit of anxiety with it, doesn't it? We get to know each other. I've got four kids, any one of which might decide they don't like what's been serve to them and not I've, I've got to make sure that if that's true they keep it to themselves and, and just eat because there's something about sitting down and eating and then I've made food for a lot of people um, trying to figure out how much barbecue a hundred men at a at a sportsman's banquet could actually eat and then cook it and hope they like it you kind of worry about that well this is a big deal how long does it take to butcher a goat and cook it and make all these unleavened cakes? Probably all day. And he sets it down. The man says, take that and dump it on top. All right, get out of the way. Touches it with a stick and pow! It bursts into flames and it's all gone. And then he disappears. That's in, we have a hard time seeing this. We watch too many movies. But what the scholars seem to think that's going on here is he's turned this rock into an altar. And that food has now become a burnt offering. And that's going to make sense as we move forward because there's another altar 
that night that he's going to be talking about. And then an altar that's going to be built afterwards. We see a lot of altars here. Uh, verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, he's disappeared, but he's still communicating. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar. So what he's done here is he's made a permanent altar out of this makeshift altar and this burnt up food. And out of gratitude for what he'd done. So verse 25 talks about what happens next. He gets his first orders. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in their due order. Then take the second bull, offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants, did as the Lord had told him. Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now whether or not Gideon knew or not, what he did that night created a situation that could not be left unresolved. You've got a, a, a group of people who are supposed to be God's people, but they're actively serving and worshiping another God. They're, they're cheating on God, and that's their shrine where they worship Baal, or Baal, as we call it, and Asherah, which is his female counterpart. And it would look kind of like something you'd burn things on, and then there'd be this wooden carving, maybe like a totem pole, something like that. It was made out of wood. And he's told to go tear it down. And specific on how to do it. Take the old bull, your tractor, and pull it down. You're going to need some help pulling this thing down. And then take the second bull, which was seven years old. That was probably a stud bull. More expensive. Sacrifice that on top of it. And for the wood, use what you chop up from tearing down that image of Baal's woman. Do that. And we see that he did it. And verse 28 through 32 summarize what happens as a result of it. And just for sake of time, I'll, I'll just give you the, the basics of it all. They woke up the next morning. And the town said, who did this? They did some investigation. It's Gideon. And they go to Gideon's father's house, Joash. And they say, bring him out. We're going to kill him. So the... the Feature that, God's chosen people are going to kill the man who tore down their pagan altar. And then all of a sudden, his dad, who has the altar at his house, he's guilty too, decides to act like he's Elijah for a moment, taking a leaf out of the 450 prophets of Baal story. He says, not a one of you is going to contend for Baal. If you do, then he's going to die by the evening. What you're going to do is let Baal stand on his own two feet. And if he's a real God, he'll take care of this. And if he's not, he's nothing. So then they nicknamed Gideon Jerubbabel. Or Yerubbabel, which means let Baal contend. His nickname from that point on is, all right, Baal, step up. It's on. 
Let's see if you've got anything to bring to the fight. Which is an incredible nickname for this man to have as a result. So that's the setup before the, the armies gather and the actual war is on. If you pick up in verse 33, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. They crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. This had happened for years. Nothing new here. But, verse 34, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He's now covered with the Holy Spirit and and able to do what he's supposed to do. He sounds a trumpet, and the Abizarites, that's the locals, were called out to follow him. Then he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, that's his entire tribe. They too were called out to follow him, and then he sent messengers to other tribes, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, those are regional uh, tribes in the area, and they went up to meet them. So instead of hiding in the caves and the dens like they'd been doing before, they as a group, after hearing the trumpet from this man whose nickname is Baal Step Up, and they're going to meet these guys as they cross the river to defend their crops and their land and enough of this. Both sides of the conflict are gathering forces for a clash of battle. The Holy Spirit is on Gideon. To empower him to do what he's called to do. But then, lo and behold, verse 36, he hesitates again. This mighty man of valor. Come on, Gideon. We're ready to go. Verse 36, and this is the famous part of the passage. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. So at least he's got him a real threshing floor now. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And by the way, that might actually take place naturally. We do have evidence of people on islands without running water or springs would put out fleeces in order to catch dew overnight and actually surviving on it. Something about wool actually attracts moisture. Um... If you've ever been caught out in the rain in a wool sweater, you know how waterlogged those things can get. And the way they smell, too. If you ever get caught in the rain in a wool suit, mm. But when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. So this is a better than scientific average uh, experiment here. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. So he did it opposite the second time. So, this isn't the end of Gideon's story. It's just the first chapter. But what can we learn about this? Where do we fit in this passage? How do we understand it? How do we obey this? Well, let me give you four points, similar to the way we broke this apart last time, and we'll move quickly through them. Number one, God's Word can expose the reason behind our suffering. I use the word can because it, it can, but it's not always the case where our suffering is because of our sin, like with the Israelites here. The prophet came to tell them, reason why y'all are... Suffering under the hand of Midian is because you've broken the covenant. Covenant infidelity. Sometimes that's the case with us, but not always. But it can. The Word of God can function 
as as a as a instrument to expose the questions we've got in our life as to why some things are happening. One of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of his word to expose the reasons for our helplessness and perhaps misery. He does this by the preaching, counsel, and reading of his word. How do you think we, we know the answers? We read it out of his word. We, we've got so much more than Gideon had. We'll get back to that too. Without the witness of the word of God, we may come to the same wrong conclusions that Gideon did and begin to blame God for the trouble we've brought on ourselves. How many times do you suppose in our life we've actually said God has abandoned me? When the truth of it is we've abandoned God. If he's quiet and we can't hear him, maybe we walked off from him. Not so much him walking off from us. Maybe he's doing what a wise parent does sometimes and just lets the natural consequences of decisions be the teacher in a situation. Sometimes it's very hard to hear. But that's one function of the Word of God. The Word of God is, is, is inspired and profitable for what? For doctrine, that's what we should do. For reproof, that's what we shouldn't do. For correction, that's what we should do after we've done what we shouldn't have done. And instruction in righteousness. That's, that's a maintenance plan to not get in that situation again. It's all there, whether or not we'll use it. The Bible only not only teaches us, but it reminds us of things we've forgotten. Had for the Israelites, and it can for us too. Number two, our greatest blessing is the presence of God. It's obvious in this story... That Gideon is no fearless leader. You know, we talk about a, a fearless leader. <laughs> Gideon's not that guy. We see him at the beginning threshing wheat while hiding. Then we see him talking about him not being the man for the job because his clan is small and his family is insignificant. Then we see him asking for signs. And right up to the night before battle, he's asking a sign and then reverses the sign the next night. But God lays down this card that trumps every bit of that stuff. And it's called, Gideon, I'll be with you. You don't need the fleece. You don't need a big family. You don't need the biggest clan. You don't need to look like Chuck Norris. It's all made up anyway. You don't need Chuck Norris's total gym. <laughs> you just need to know that I'm with you. And you trust me. And I'll get you through it all. Now think about this. And this is a bold statement if you never thought of it this way. But basically, God has nothing more and nothing else to offer you than his presence. You say, well, he gave his son to die on the cross. For what purpose? To buy you back for standing in his presence. He made you for himself. And for him to be with you is, what can you not go through if God is with you? This is the God of the universe. So, you might say, well, that's not very comforting. It wasn't to Gideon either. Gideon's reaction to the assurance of God's promises once he he got the answers to all this, including watching his dinner explode in, in front of his face. The confirmation of God's presence with Gideon seems to terrify him rather than strengthen him. He thinks he's going to die now that he's seen God face to face. 
And this is again where I think some of us Gentiles here in the Western world have a hard time identifying with, with Gideon. We want to say, it's all right, Gideon. You don't need to be afraid of God. He's much nicer in the New Testament. If you could just read through the Gospels, you'd realize he's this humble servant. And he's kind and he's patient. And he's forgiving. And Gideon would probably look back at us like we were an ignorant theological fool and tell us no you don't know Yahweh what I've heard of Yahweh see that's the mystery of this presence of God that is to give us peace nothing is amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness does that make sense it's not amazing grace if you change the words you know, understandable grace, how sweet the sound that got a halfway decent guy like me out of a jam. I once had a few things going for me, and then I kind of fell on hard times. But with some scriptures, I've turned things around. Now, the, the amazing part about grace is that you have flunked every exam you've ever taken You're absolutely worthless to God, dead in your trespasses and sins, a stench to His holiness, but He, for some reason, decided to give His Son in your place so you could have it all washed away and be back in His presence, presentable to a holy God. That's amazing grace. So when Gideon sees all this, sometimes I think we want to look at it and say, ah, he's just a big coward, he needs some guts. No, I think he actually saw God face to face and then he really got scared. His cowardice actually began to grow at that point. He was just a novice cowardice to start before. But now that he's seen God face to face, he's a professional coward and scared to death. And this is what I think is so gracious about this story. God seems to be patient to go through all the rigmarole of wetting fleeces or drying fleeces just to make sure that Gideon is okay. That's another part. We got one before that, and we'll move quickly. Two altars cannot coexist side by side. That's point number three. I don't want to make point number four before I make point number three. I almost did there. But two altars. Why did God begin with a demand for Gideon to tear down the pagan altar? You shall have no other gods before me. That's their problem. So before they fix something, they need to take out the trash, right? God was going to deliver deliver Israel, but he had to prepare them for that deliverance. And where did God tell Gideon to get started with the trash bag? The hardest place of all. Home. With his daddy. Don't y'all think that's the case? Cleaning up stuff at home, spiritually speaking, as the leader in the family, that's the most difficult because all the people on the couch that are listening to you say things are going to be different. You know they're looking at the biggest hypocrite in the home. Right? That's the way it feels. So just ignore it. We won't do it. You can be all macho and turn around in the hockey game until I got to, hey, watch that language, buddy. Got kids here. But you'll leave the TV on while somebody does the worst job of it. You say, how do you know that? How do you think I know that? It's not hard to do that at home. It's exactly where he had to start. 
You can't have two altars because you can't have two gods. They're mutually exclusive. They're enemies to one another. You can't serve them both. It's one or the other. So choose one. And what he said here was get rid of that wrong idol. We're going to set up a new one. It's no different in the New Testament. When Jesus works with the rich young ruler. You remember him, right? What must I do to be saved? What does he tell him? Oh, let me find the card. Need the card. Decision card. You just check the box, follow me. Oh, you already checked that one. Well, just check, uh, rededicate your life. Uh, And you can come forward at the end of service. Is that what Jesus told the rich young ruler? No, he actually performed surgery on the man and exposed his idols that were more important to him than God and then told him to smash them. Sell all that stuff and give it to the poor. Become a nobody and follow me. That's rough. Smash the idol. You can only have one. So it's the same when we've got kids who fall down and scrape their knee. They come in crying. We don't go to the band-aid first, right? No, you clean that thing out first. You get the Bactine. They still use Bactine for scrapes. I hate it. It would whistle with a little red cap. You know, when mom would and squeeze all that. It burns on your skin. But you've got to clean the wound out. Then it'll heal. Y'all don't know about Bactine. What about methylate? Y'all probably use that. <laughs> See, we, we're getting somewhere now. Or uh, my daddy called it uh, mercurochrome. That had mercury in it, by the way. It was bad for you. It killed all the dirt and the skin you put it on. They got Bactine now. It's better. It still stings. And it'll clean the wound out. And that's what we've got to do, spiritually speaking. Clean out the mess so things can heal. Let's see. Number four. I'll finish with this. God is not ashamed to reassure us in our fears. And this is what I think was going on with Gideon. In an academic sense, your mileage will vary on Gideon's famous fleece, depending on the scholar you happen to be reading. Some look at the practice favorably. Some look at it deplorably. Some would say, if it was so bad, why did God answer Gideon's request? It's a good question. If we're supposed to do it, why would Jesus condemn the devil, rebuke him for actually suggesting that he should jump off a building and see if God would save him and show everybody how cool that was? So that type of testing isn't good. So what's going on and what do we do with it? Well, most agree that Gideon's fleece test is hardly exemplary. This is not a go thou and do likewise passage. And it might show more of his faithlessness than than faith in God. Again, depending on how you see this. Certainly doesn't show him at his best. And he had enough of what he needed. But then again, we're making judgments on Gideon's heart. And we're just not told exactly what the contents of his heart was. To use the pattern, passage as a pattern to determine God's direction is highly questionable, too. Uh, I, I heard J.D. Greer say that he would make half-court basketball shots before he'd ask girls out on a date. Lord, if I sink it, I'm going to ask her out. And if I sink the next one, something like that, then I'm going to say this is ending in marriage, right? It's not how you do things. This is a good case for what the Bible records is not necessarily prescribed as a command. 
Not to mention that Gideon has a lack of understanding. He doesn't have a whole Bible to work with like we do. So Gideon is not looking for little signs of confirmation like we try to do. If if this is a job I should get, then I want it to ring by 3 o'clock, the phone. Then I'll know this is God's will. That's a little sign. He's asking for big signs. I don't know if any of you have ever said, I want my whole yard wet and this pillow or, or washcloth to be dry. That would be a miracle. So he's asking for big things because he's going into a big war. And that's something most of us wouldn't know anything about. What the paragraph does show is that being clothed with the Holy Spirit, Spirit as Gideon was, right? Sounds wonderful. It does not insulate nor obliterate the weaknesses that are part of being a fallen human being. He's clothed with the Spirit of God and he's still doubting. And you can still come to church every week, read your Bible, do the things you're supposed to do and still be quite human and quite frail and quite in need of a Savior to be with you. Right? He didn't just say, "Um, I'm going to the beach, you handle this, Gideon, you got everything you need for it. Uh, Try flying. Oh yeah, you like that? You can do other things. You're Iron Man now, I'm going to the beach. I'm making fun here because we want to act like that's the way it is, but it's not. We need to remember we're still going to need Him, even though we've got His Holy Spirit. It shows us the amazing grace of God making allowances for Gideon's imperfections as well. We even see His apologetic tone in asking for that fleecing sign, again, because He knows He shouldn't need it, but God doesn't blast Him or even correct Him. He simply gives Him what He asks for. And there's been occasions where I've had one of my children come to me and ask for something. And it looks like it took them quite a bit of nerve to ask me about it or for it. They're wrestling with something. And the last thing I say is, you dummy, you should know this by now. I can't think of anything I like better than having my child need me or want me. And I don't think God looks at people who, because they don't know what else to do, are fleecing the Lord in their ignorance. I think He condescends to that and shows his grace that's what it looks like to me so this paragraph of judges 6 Gideon's imperfections his weaknesses serve only to magnify the grace of God it is then that God's God's conduct rather than Gideon's is what we should follow as our example the text is not about how to make decisions we got there's another lesson for that it's about our need to have a big picture of who God is And about his grace in giving us just that through his Bible. With Gideon, he had to do miracles. With us, he's said it all in his word. It's all right here. You need to know what to do. It's all right here. And he'll be with you. There's wisdom in this book. He's not going to tell you the address of your next job. Or the name of your mate. But it will give you wisdom to make sound decisions. And he's glorified when you do. It's not meant to be complicated or rocket science. So, do you know the God of your fathers? Do, do you know Him? Or is it just your father's religious stuff that you try on, looks good while you're at church, but you really don't know Him? That's where, where Gideon was at the moment. Are you willing to tear down the idols in your life or in your home, in your schedule? Things that keep you distracted your heart in two places are you amazed at the patience and grace of God in working with you at all 
If you're not surprised that God even fools with you, maybe your grace isn't such an amazing thing. Maybe because you don't understand the holiness of a God and the gulf between the two of you and why he would fool with you to start with. And the fact that God has said he'd be with you, is that enough? Because when God told Gideon, I'll be with you, he didn't say, I'll answer all your questions, all your details. What, when, how? I'm just going to answer one question, and that's the who. Me. I'll be with you. Is that enough? Of course it is. But is it? That's what I think we can learn from Gideon. With that said, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we've had a big plate today. And the things that we've seen in your word are not so different than that big old meal that was made. It's more than enough for us in this room. Lord, may these things make sense to us. May the fact of your presence in our life comfort us, but at the same time frighten us as to the relationship we can have with the Holy God through the death of His Son on our behalf to wash away the sin that separates us. Lord, teach us grace through judges. And Lord, may we understand part of this grace is your patience in working with us. Lord, may that comfort us as a child who knows his parent is proud of him despite mistakes and failures. And even though this is the scariest thing we can think about, Lord, send us into the fight. Even if it's the fight for our families and our children in our own homes and collectively as a church to tell the truth and live the truth and serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lord, thank you for your word. Seal it to our hearts. Having understood, help us to obey. We ask this in your name. Amen.